Hello, and welcome to A View from the Perch, a podcast covering important financial topics from the perspective of two certified financial planners. Each week, we give a brief market update, discuss current economic conditions, and provide education on a financial subject. Now, here are your hosts, Bill Parrott and Spencer Nguyen. All right, Bill, new week, same question. How are the markets? Well, stocks uh, over the last five days up quite a bit. Uh, the S&P up 3%. Uh, small caps down 1%. International flat. And bonds are down 2%. So large cap stocks, AI stocks, tech stocks, the Meg 7, that, that's where the action is. Or now they're calling it like the Fantastic Four or the, the six-pack because Tesla is not cooperating. But large-cap stocks are leading the way once again in 2024. Yeah, I was hearing some people saying we need to drop Tesla from the Magnificent Seven and put in Eli Lilly. Um, and so that's been kind of the, the scuttlebutt. But that makes sense. And with bonds decreasing, is that just because we saw an increase in kind of the 10-year Treasury yield? It's always math. It's always it's math. The, and when you see bonds going down, rates are going up. Uh, mm -hmm. There's really no other explanation for it. It's just a, a simple calculation. And again, uh, I think a lot of people were under the assumption that the Powell and the Fed was going to lower rates day one, and mm -hmm. it's not happening. And there are some rumblings that they might not lower rates in 2024. Uh, or if they do, it might only be two or three times at the back half of the year. The Fed, Powell, and, and a lot of the speakers have been uh, publicly saying, hey, we're kind of okay with where we are right now. And markets don't like that. Bond markets don't like that. And, and uh, rates uh, are, are up quite a bit this year. The 10-year is up like 7 or 8% already on the year. And when rates rise, bond prices fall. Uh, however, um, it'll start to stabilize pretty soon. Uh, mm -hmm. I think once investors realize, hey, we're okay with the tenure at 4% and it's not the end of the world, uh, even if the Fed doesn't lower rates this year, which again, right now there's no incentive for them to lower rates. Yeah, especially with the good economic data that keeps coming in. We had some yeah. more of this, this earlier this week, so it's Really, why would you um, cut if you don't need to? And then, but so the the rates on the treasury, that's the increase is really because of hey, people thought they were going to cut rates at the beginning of the year. They didn't. Economic data still came in strong, and then Powell was a little bit of a little wet blanket to the interest rate desires um, earlier. Yeah, you know, again, um, the market. The bond market doesn't like what the Fed is saying, and so uh, bond prices are—you know—they're selling bonds, and, and bond prices are rising. So that that trend—I don't know if it'll continue for much longer. To be honest with you, um, I don't know how many times the Fed could say, "Hey, we don't need to do anything right now," but they'll find ways to do it. And so investors don't like bonds right now, and and. And they're 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 down this week uh, over two percent. Yeah. Do you foresee kind of the large cap stocks similar to? I know all asset classes were up last year, but really the tech stocks were 
the most extreme um, risers? Do you, do you think anticipate that for this year or kind of what, what really occurs when we have, you know, who knows, yeah. <laughs> uh, flip a coin. That's why we like diversified portfolios. True. Cause we just never know when, where, why, how, or who, or what's going to move. Uh, the valuations on the Meg seven are, are, are pretty rich. Uh, some are crazy, but, you know, so they pull back some, uh, not the worst thing to happen, uh, you know, because NVIDIA this year is already at 41%. Yeah. Uh, Meta is up 32%. And you mentioned Eli Lilly. It's already up 24%. Yeah. Um, and what are we in? We're uh, a month into the, or a week into the new month. So we're five weeks into the year and NVIDIA is already up a staggering 41%. So, I, I don't know. Uh, that's just where the money's flowing right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Valuation-wise, international and small caps are very compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, but people want to go where the money is, and that's the large-cap tech stocks. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And it, the argument very well could be, well, Tesla was up X percent last year. They were part of the Magnificent 7, and now they're just kind of getting booted. So you just don't even know which stock even in between the – or in the Magnificent Seven is going to be performing. And, you know, they're always changing to the Fantastic Four. It was Fang. So it's just, uh, yeah, you're right. It, you flip of a coin, but we shall see. And we're talking about seven stocks. It's like, you know, Allen Iverson practice, man. We're talking about practice. <laughs> we're talking about seven stocks out of thousands. True. And, and there's a lot of other companies that are doing better than NVIDIA. Um, but they don't get a lot of press. Mm. So they're out there. Um, so I would encourage people, I mean, these seven are great companies, of course, but if you have an index fund and you're diversified, you have access to them, plus many more. So I, you know, I wouldn't just get so fixated on on these these seven. Yeah, I mean, diversification is the name of the game, buy and hold that. Uh, mm. Completely agree. Well, let's transition over to our empowering education, and we're going to be talking about liquid versus non-liquid assets. So just to get the conversation ready, kind of, can you explain to us what a liquid asset versus a non-liquid asset is, and then kind of go, we'll get a little bit more in the granular details after. So the most liquid asset in the world is cash, right? Money that you have in a checking account, you could buy something today, no issues, no concerns. Uh, and a, a non-liquid or an illiquid asset is is like a high-rise building. So I can't go downtown. Like if I was the owner of the Frost Bank building in Austin, I can't just sell that today and convert it to cash. It, it's going to take a long time to find a buyer, mm. close the deal. Uh, and it might take years depending on what you're trying to sell. So Typically, an illiquid asset is anything anchored to the ground. <laughs> it's just not moving. Um, but cash is the most liquid asset. Corporate buildings are probably the most uh, illiquid asset. So the, the key difference, you'd say, is just the time it takes in order to get that cash flow from a sale? Yeah. How, how soon can you convert something to cash? So mm -hmm. gas is cash, money markets, T-bills, cash. Uh, bonds, stocks, I can convert those to cash today. Okay. Uh, 
but I, I can't sell my home. I can't sell a building. I can't sell it, maybe even my car in a day. You know, it might take a few days to liquidate mm-hmm. it. So if you really need liquidity, if you need cash, you want to put it in a savings account, checking account, money market fund, T-bill. Those other assets will probably provide better returns, mm-hmm. except my car. But um, illiquid assets potentially can provide better returns because of the longevity. Like, for example, if you buy a home, you might stay in that for 7, 10, 15, 20 years. And over that time frame, it's going to appreciate significantly just because you haven't sold it. You have done nothing other than live in your home. So illiquid assets over time uh, potentially can do well just because you're holding on to it. You're not selling it. You're not trying to convert it to cash daily and so on. But uh, liquidity is how fast can you turn something into cash? Yeah. And then what would you kind of put the risk associated with these two different types of uh, assets? So what would you kind of identify with the liquid assets and then with the liquid assets that you talked about? Well, it's oil and water. You know, it's uh, <laughs> uh, the UST bill is the safest investment in the world. It's never lost money. And a corporate building, uh, a high-rise building, depends where it is. And, can, and, and again, you're not converting that building to cash. So if you need money today and you had a corporate building, uh, that's a very risky investment. Uh, however, most people that buy corporate buildings uh, are super wealthy and have assets everywhere. Uh, so not a concern. But I would put it as as aggressive short term because it can't be converted to cash quickly. Um, not the true definition of aggressive or risky, but again, if we're talking liquidity, uh, you certainly don't want to own the Frost Bank building. Yeah. And there's are those that say, okay, I can't afford a corporate building, but then what about these private placements that come around and you pull a group of investors? So kind of, can you talk to us about that and how it deals with kind of these, these asset groups that we're speaking to? Well, anytime you go into a private transaction, private equity, a non-traded REITs, real estate investment trust, uh, an oil and gas limited partnership, um, these usually are structured with quarterly redemptions, and you have to notify the general partner typically 30 days in advance. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want to liquidate my holdings. Um, and sometimes you can only liquidate a percentage of your holdings. Uh, during COVID, there were a few private real estate institutions in, in Austin that froze redemptions. Mm-hmm. You just couldn't get your money out, even if you wanted to. They said, sorry, uh, we can't liquidate right now. Uh, the market has not gone in our favor because of COVID. So some of these investors were frozen for a year, a year and a half. So private equity, uh, private transactions, they can turn off the spigot at any time. So if you put money into these accounts, if their market turns south, they say, you know what, we can't sell right now, you can't get any money out, and we'll let you know when you can. So the liquidity uh, on these investments uh, could go to, to zero yeah. if their underlying investments start underperforming. Yeah, that's a good point. So what would you say to an investor, they walk up to you and they say, I've been told my whole life, 
real estate's the way to go, but I have this 401k, I have these investment accounts, I have this cash. What's a good balance between kind of all of these asset groups? Well, it depends on how much they have to invest. Mm -hmm. And um, most people will eventually buy a home and that's going to be their largest asset for quite a while. And uh, most people don't consider that uh, an investment because uh, you're living in it. Yeah. Uh, and in some cases, it's a liability. Um, but it, it depends on what they're, what they're doing. Um, right before COVID, a client called. They had money in cash. It was earning nothing. And they had an opportunity to buy a ranch north of Austin. And I said, it makes perfect sense. They bought the ranch, COVID hit. That investment has more than doubled for them over the past few years. So I don't know if there's a percentage or a dollar amount. Um, it just depends on what their, their goals are and what their underlying holdings are. But anything that you put into private equity, uh, land, buildings, uh, you just have to assume that you're going to hold on to it, uh, I would say, for at least five to seven years. Okay. If your time frame is less than that, it doesn't make a lot of sense to to lock your money up into something that you can't convert to cash quickly. Yeah. And I know you can't make blanket recommendations, but if we had kind of the, just take a step back and look at it globally, stock performances versus kind of real estate performances that we talked about, are they similar? Are they very different kind of what, what do we see there? Well, again, it depends on the market and what you own. So it's comparing apples to oranges and, and there's really not a way to compare them. Um, if you look at a broad index of stocks and using a broad index of real estate, um, like the Case-Shiller indices, uh, stocks have outperformed real estate over time. And real estate historically has tracked the rate of inflation on the growth rate. But again, there are pockets, right? Yeah. If you're in Beverly Hills, Park City, Utah, Manhattan, um, you've probably crushed the S&P 500. You know, if you're in, uh, I don't want to pick on any cities, but um, let's just throw Detroit in there. You know, I, I don't think Detroit real estate has probably done all that well over time. Uh, so it depends on the market too, and what you're buying. So uh, again, real estate is, you know, it's uh, location, 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 and that really drives it. But if we just looked at a broad index of stocks and real estate stocks have outperformed real estate. That makes sense. So when we talk about suitability, kind of what do you think a suitable investor to say, hey, I actually do want to get into private placements in real estate, kind of what, I know it's going to fluctuate, but portion of kind of net worth, do you have any kind of rules of thumb for that, or is it just case by case very? And are you just talking about like buying a home? Not buying a home. So like you have your home, right? So we we've got that out of the way. But if it's like okay, I have a portion of my income, do I want to go the real estate route, or would rather go kind of investment into stocks and bonds and situations? And so that just like when we're looking at private placements and when we're looking at real estate opportunities, we have rule of thumbs of suitability on how much mm -hmm. is going to make it overweight or. How much should I leverage things of that nature? 
Yeah, unfortunately, there's no rules of thumb here. This just depends on how much you have to invest. Um, you know, if you only invest ten or twenty thousand, you're not buying real estate. Uh, if you have two, three, four, five million, it's a different story. Mm -hmm. And so the dollars will dictate. I know on a lot of private placements, you have to be an accredited investor. So typically, that's two hundred thousand income uh, worth more than a million dollars. And a lot of private placements uh, have like $10 million minimums. Now you can go to like uh, brokerage firms, Morgan Stanley, UBS, and they offer private placements all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 100 grand, 200 grand, 300 grand to get in. Uh, however, the fees and commissions are outrageous. So you want to do your homework on those. But um, I don't know. I don't think there's a rule of thumb. It just really depends on the dollars that, that you have to invest. Yeah, Again, sense. somebody with not a lot of money, 10, 20,000, they're better off going into the stock market. Somebody with multiple millions, they have choices, of course, that others don't. Yeah. When you talk about doing your research and making sure the fees and commissions are up to par and then also all the other things are up to snuff, is is there a place that kind of a retail investor can go look at that thing, at those things and make sure that they are um, legitimate? No. <laughs> really? So with, with private investments, buyer beware. I mean, there's there's no way to gauge uh, if it's a good deal or not. You have to do your own due diligence, and that's the challenge to private equity, um, non-traded REITs, venture capital, angel investing, oil and gas partnerships, and so on. Um, they typically should have a prospectus item in there, yeah. uh, but the fees are going to be very high. Mm -hmm. um, when I was starting my career uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, we always had wholesalers coming in selling limited partnerships, oil and gas partnerships, real estate partnerships, tax credits, and they would send us on these lavish trips and the fees were insane. Now I never sold one, and uh, but the commissions were outrageous. You know, ten or fifteen percent was not uncommon. And uh, so, if you're an investor and a company is sending you to uh, the Montage in Laguna Beach for a road show, uh, you're probably going to get fleeced. Yeah. So that's one indicator. Or if you keep getting invited to steak dinners, you're getting fleeced there as well. You know, yeah. because the commissions are so high and that's why they could offer these trips, these steak dinners, because they're going to make four, five, 10 percent on that, that investment. But for the typical investor, there's not enough due diligence data available. Yeah. Especially if you're working with a local company, not buying non-traded REITs. I mean, how do you value that? How do you do your research? There's no benchmark. Yeah, I agree. And. I think what it boils down to is both the real estate aspect and going into liquid assets such as stocks, they both can be very viable in routes and very viable strategies, but it's that aspect of when you try to make a quick dollar or try to do something flashy, or like you said, get taken out on these trips. That's where I really see kind of investors have problems is when you start chasing things that are too good to be true. And we can see that in, in margin accounts with stocks, but it seems like it's a little bit more 
exposed when it comes to real estate because it's like you said, the flashy things and things of that nature. So what would you tell to an investor that says, hey, let's not, you choose either or strategy or you can combine them. Like that's a good, that's a good strategy as well. But how do we avoid kind of those flashy objects? How do we avoid those chasing those absurd returns when I get handed a prospect that says I'm going to make 25% on my money? got to do your homework. You, and, and that's the challenge with uh, a lot of these private placements is you don't have any way to to gauge, especially if it's a, a new offering. Mm-hmm. You know, they're selling you on the promise of here's what's going to happen. I got an email yesterday um, from a, I don't even know who it was from. I deleted it, but uh, they were promising an 18% internal rate of return. Well, you know, uh, the historical rate for stocks is 10%. And I would use that as a guide. Mm-hmm. So if they're offering you 18, 20, 12, whatever that rate is, how are they getting that return? What's been their track record? Look at their previous deals, read the small print, mm-hmm. and then then make a decision. Uh, again, if they're taking you on these fancy trips, uh, the commissions are going to be super outrageous, yeah. but there's really not a way for most individual investors to do due diligence on private placements. That's why we don't do them. We offer no private investing because we just don't have the capacity to review a deal. Mm-hmm. Like, do I know what an Airbnb on South Congress is worth? I have no idea. And, uh, and most investors don't either. So don't get blindsided by the glossies, the the nice pictures, the internal rates of return projections. You got to read the small print. And if you're not sure, I would hire an attorney. Said, "Hey, can you read this contract for me? I have no idea what it says." But you got to it's buyer beware. It's 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 the wild west out there in a lot of cases. Yeah. Love it and kind of I think that idea of if you have 5 to 7 years Maybe go with a if you if you were pushing towards that way. Maybe go with a more illiquid asset. But if you if you need that money in in a hurry, or especially in under a year, it doesn't make sense to go with an illiquid asset. Make sure you have that um that capability of paying whatever you need to pay. And I would say if you have the resources and the means and the money, buy the property yourself buy it directly don't go in with a team don't go in with uh, a packaged product don't go in as a, a limited partnership uh, buy it outright you yeah. know buy the building uh, buy the land buy the home y- you will do better you'll get better tax write-offs um, you won't have any ongoing fees you can control your own destiny so in that situation, I think you're better off going directly to the source and buying it outright rather than going through a company that buys real estate. Now, it, you know, there's a whole nother subsection here, uh, venture capital and angel investors. Sure. And if you're in Austin or Silicon Valley, you have to be in that market to know. And the people that I know that are in that line of business, uh, they're super intelligent, but that's all they do. They know it inside and out. So if you have a special expertise, then I would leverage that somehow, some way, uh, like the VCs do or angel investors do. But 
for most investors, I think you're better off uh, buying real estate on your own and putting the rest into publicly traded investment stocks and bonds and funds. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. And I feel like you could do a whole podcast on venture capitalists and angel investing because there's just so much to it. Um, Perfect. Well, anything else you'd like to talk about this, this subject? You know, when the market rises, the stock market, and the market has a good year, you start to see more of these deals come out mm-hmm. because they're like, oh, everybody's making money, um, and now they want to make more. So greed kicks in, and it's easier to sell these private placements when the equity markets are doing well because everybody's making money, yeah. and they're like, yeah, you know, you can make X percent or whatever it is. But again, you got to do your homework because, uh, as they say, the big print giveth, the small print taketh away. I like that. That's a good one. All right, well, let's transition over into our faithful finance and keep it on brand. We're going to be talking about Esau and Jacob and how Esau gave up one of his illiquid assets, um, a good asset, in order to cover a short-term means because he did not have means himself. So this comes from Genesis 26, 29, and it says, once Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright right now. And Esau said, I'm about to die of what good is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob and Esau broke bread and lentil stew and I ate and drank. And if you don't know who Esau and Jacob are, these are the children of Isaac. And so this is really the start of the Israelite nation. And they were twins, but Esau came out first. So Esau had the firstborn birthrights, which is in biblical times, that's who gets everything. That's the person that's going to get, continue the family. They are the firstborn. Like that's that's really the, the main person. And so Esau went and hunted and people will say what are you just hungry you're going to sell your birthright which is your inheritance is another word for it but he was out there for a while and jacob's seeing this is like hey if you want some of the stew that i've spent all this time making give me your birthright and then i'll give it to you and i think this is just a a great story and a great depiction on don't over leverage yourself when it comes to investments because if you're not able to pay a short-term need that might not be Mm -hmm. Expected now, Esau obviously got hungry, but he might not be expected that his brother would have said, Hey, you need to sell your birthright in order for you not to starve. Make sure you have that coverage and don't have to sell a good asset to take care of a bad asset. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jacob or Esau had to sell his birthright, which is far more valuable, but he's not able to touch it tangibly until his father passes. And so that's why he says, What good is me is right now because. Mm. I'm not going to get told his father dies. So just making sure you're not over leveraged on that fact. I think this is a great story in order to, for preparation and, and making sure you have kind of some liquid assets that you're able to take care of some um, unforeseen expenses. It's a story as old as time. Uh, people sell uh, good assets to pay for bad ones. And if you have an illiquid asset, if all your assets are illiquid and you have a cash crunch, you're in trouble. Yeah. And then you have to resort to things that, uh, might solve the problem in the near term, but causes a bigger issue longer term. And uh, leverage, illiquidity, greed, uh, those are pretty good ways to a downfall. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. And it's just, 
the birthright's a great asset. It's not a bad asset. It's just it was all his eggs in one basket when it came to this situation, and that's what causes mm. the problem. It's not a matter of oh, e-liquids are bad assets. It's just hey, make sure you're diversified so you're able to cover that expense. Um, yeah, I think it's always always cool to see the Bible have these these lessons, which fun especially now that we're like in this world and i'm reading it over again i'm like oh my gosh that's i've never thought of it that way but that makes total sense uh perfect well bill what would you like to leave our listeners with again it goes back to the diversification you know here it goes back to this bible story that you need some money in in liquid assets for short-term needs and emergency and you need some other assets that grow over time so Diversification is the, is, the, is the theme of the day. Love it. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you.